Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Happy birthday to you. We are recording on the 41st, 41st. birthday. The yep. Rubicon has been crossed. That's right. Of Sarah Condon. Yeah. The, the Reverend nice. What's nice. it like? Yeah. What this is 41. Tell us about it. Um I still have hair on my head, so I haven't had to start wearing wigs yet. That feels major. Mm-hmm. Um I, my back didn't hurt this morning because I stretch oh. a lot now. Thanks oh, to no. Ginger Oaks. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Who Ginger. told Melina, who told me that you have to start stretching. Um, you know, it feels really good. I mean, I, I don't think I'll ever be somebody that like wants to not age given my life so i'm like this is awesome you know like and my kids this morning like my son of course they didn't say anything like they don't know i mean they know but like they're not remembering it in the morning and i said something to him and he's like oh my gosh you must feel like really bad that i didn't say happy birthday to you and i was like no you're in middle school this is not your focus you know mm. so um that's but on i'm josh. excited yeah that's on josh <laughs> <laughs> That's his fault. Um, in addition to working all day, he needs to remind his the kids, kids to say happy and birthday. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, no, I'm. It's a really good week. My um, my friend Kim, who I've talked about here before, like uh, she and her husband are like grandparents to our kids. She's in town, and so after this, we're gonna go shopping, go out to lunch, and so it's really sweet. Fun. Yeah. Happy birthday, Sarah. Are you gonna do anything family wise too? Well, so Neil is in this play. Um, that starts tomorrow night and honestly could not be a better birthday gift to me than my kid being like the lead in a play. Like that is like so exciting. So, um, we're going to go out to dinner tonight actually without him. Cause he's like, it's serious. He's in like full dress tech rehearsals. Mm-hmm. Um, and which feels very silly to say about a seventh grader, but anyway, <laughs> they say that. So, uh, yeah, so we'll do that. We're going to Oxford next week. We're going to, we'll celebrate more there. So it's good. That's cool. awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're getting celebrated in the way that feels uh, particularly like God's gift to you, aka Neil. Yeah, singing and dancing. Yeah. Um, that's just such a wonderful, beautiful irony of this move that that's yeah. that that happened as well. Uh, RJ, what what's uh, how about you, man? I'm great. Things were really good. We just had what I think is was probably the most remarkable week of like my time at Holy Trinity. It was just mm. um. Really, really amazing. I mean, Jane Anderson Grizzle was here on Monday and just led a oh, wonderful yeah. women's retreat. Anyway, we're really good. And I'm also good. looking forward. We're going to be in Texas next week for Thanksgiving because that's where our boys want to be because that's where the girlfriends are. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Okay. But we'll see some friends and hang out. And so um, you guys like rent a house or something? Yeah. Yeah. That's we awesome. got an Airbnb and, and uh, so good. flying out Sunday night, coming back Saturday. But it'll just be nice to get off the grid because it has, I mean, October, November is a super, super busy time for clergy between stewardship and events and diocesan conventions and blah, blah, blah. So it'll be nice just to have a little time off the grid, but, um, I'm tired, but it's like a really, really 
good tired of the RJ Heyman glory story continues pretty, pretty much every, pretty every much yeah week. that's right twice a and month Dave. we get to hear the new the new strength to strength yeah ask my wife if that's how she feels <laughs> living with me if that's the, her experience yeah, exactly exactly uh, we do like a b-side and it's like reality with Jamie yeah, like that's, that's, <laughs> we should do that. That's the external story. How about yeah. the internal How about one? The AKA internal story. the real yeah. one. The real um, one. Things things are good on on this end. You know, I'm the same as you guys. It's just like uh, somehow our school system managed to pull off uh, two four day weeks and a three day week, sort of like in a row. So wow, that was um, that's always a real gift shall we say mm, what a yeah. gift um yeah but we we made it through and and um we were just actually i was just uh in in washington and that's where we'll be uh for um for the holiday we we're celebrating my mother-in-law's 70th birthday and Aww. that was uh, a lot involved in that in fact it kind of leads straight into what we're talking about first here which is the plight of the eldest daughter. So I am married oh. to an eldest daughter. Yeah. She's the daughter of an eldest daughter. I'm yeah. the son of an eldest daughter. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I'm speaking to an eldest daughter whose birthday yes. it is today. Yes. And someone who's married to an eldest daughter. Uh, and me. RJ, who's married not to me. an eldest daughter. Yeah. No, not and RJ, you. RJ, yeah. RJ not is yet. the eldest son. <laughs> birth order-wise, I'm, I'm the only aberration here. I am a middle child. A proud Which is why you're so, so so well adjusted, Dave. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, <laughs> it's why you always. I've made this joke before, and I feel bad. Maybe I've only made it. Maybe I haven't made it on air. But it's why uh-oh. if you ever go to Mockingbird, New York, Dave walks into every room just on a cycle. I'm convinced. Like he just like goes to every room and then starts at the top of the list and goes, "Are you guys having a good time?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a yeah. curse and a blessing, I should say. Yeah. Um, well, this is the plight of the eldest daughter. And it, yeah, it definitely hit home to me the week after my wife put on a enormous sort of 70th birthday party for yeah. her mother. Yeah. So um, a lot of daughtering going on as yeah. the term today. This is by Sarah Sloat in The Atlantic. Being an eldest daughter means frequently feeling like you're not doing enough. Mm. Like you're struggling to maintain a veneer of control, like the entire household relies on your diligence. At least that's what a contingent of oldest sisters have been saying online. Across social media platforms, they've described the stress of feeling accountable for their family's happiness, the pressure to succeed, the impression that they aren't being cared for in the way they care for others. Some are still teens. Others have grown up and left home but still feel over-involved and overextended. As one viral tweet put it, are you happy or are you the oldest sibling and also a girl? Uh, People have even coined a term for this, eldest daughter syndrome, because everything today, as we know, is an epidemic or a syndrome. That syndrome does speak to a real social phenomenon, Yang Hu, a professor at Lancaster University, told me. In many cultures, oldest siblings, as well as daughters of all ages, tend to face high expectations from family members. So people playing both parts are especially likely to take on a large share of household responsibilities and might deal with more stress as a result. Now, we've talked about uh, birth order stuff here before, and so we know that, you know, the findings are that it actually isn't empirically verifiable that there are different sort of traits. Uh, And yet research does suggest that there are some striking differences in the experience 
experiences of first and second boards. Susan McHale, a family studies professor at Penn State, told uh, Sarah Sloat that parents tend to be, quote, focused on getting it right with the first one, leading them to fixate on their firstborn's development growing up, their grades, their health, the friends they choose, the musicals they star in. Just kidding. um, uh, (laughs) With their subsequent children, they might be less anxious and feel less need to micromanage, and that can lead to less tension in the parent-child dynamic. On average, American parents experience less conflict with their secondborn than with their first. I believe it. Oh, totally. Mikhail has found that when firstborns leave home, their relationship with their family tends to improve. And conflict then commonly increases between parents and their younger children because the spotlight is on them. Corinna Tucker, a professor at the University of New Hampshire who studies sibling relationships, told me that parents frequently compare their children – Go figure. This is my athlete. This is my bookworm. So-and-so is going to take care of me when I'm old. Dun-dun-dun-dun. Emphasis mine. And kids internalize those statements. But your assigned part might not align with your dispositions. People can grow frustrated with the traits expected of them and of their siblings. Daughtering is the term that Allison Alford, a Baylor University professor who researches these things, uses to describe the family work that girls and women tend to take on. Daughtering can be satisfying, even joyful, but can also mean caring for siblings and sometimes for parents in a way that goes above and beyond what other children, especially younger ones, are expected to do. Yeah, gosh, a lot of points of connection here. I just say the conflict with one's first child over the other ones, major theme in my life. Yeah, (laughs) And major theme in my family of origin too. Sure. Um, The pressure that a eldest daughter feels that I've observed uh, both in my own mother and then in my wife is just – it's outsized. And it talk about the law and the constant feeling of guilt. Like, yeah, but it's it's funny that this is sort of being I don't know acknowledged in almost like a popular level. So I don't know, Sarah. Let's hear it. What do you, what do you have, what's going on? I well, I've said I think I've mentioned this meme, but I love it that says like, "Are you an eldest daughter? Can you ask for help?" Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, I will say I ha- there's so much I could say about this. Um, I definitely fit all of sort of the markers for what this looks like in terms of like listening to their problems and, you know, worrying about my parents a lot and making sure they're okay. And, you know, I had tried to get them to move closer to us, like all of those sorts of things. And I will say there is a relief now, right? When I watch my peers who are eldest daughters navigate like failing health or, or even like throwing a birthday party or because I've seen a lot of that lately And yet there's still so much of my life that is eldest daughter, right? Like I sit in a room surrounded by stuff right now that doesn't belong to me that I don't want. Um, (laughs) You know, there, I still sort of did that. And I remember just my brother was just like, just throw it away. And I was like, well, F you. Like, I'm just like, you can just throw (laughs) this away. Like, how do you do that? What does that freedom feel like? You know? And I, th- I will say this. I will say that in, in their deaths, I've tried to ask my brother a lot more how he would handle things because they're, the pressure of them being here is not here. And so I, I can, I think, learn from him as like the more relaxed one, which has been a gift. But I don't know. I mean, I, I also think it's like there are so many beautiful things about being the eldest daughter that it's hard for me to just be like, oh, it's the worst. Like 
you know, I did get like more music lessons and more attention and more like focus on my academics. And I got so much more of that than my brother did. I mean, my parents cooked meals every night for me. And by the time he came along, they were so busy with work that my dad, do you guys know the Schwann's truck? (laughs) No, no. It's frozen food and they drive it around on a truck. And my dad was such good friends with the Schwann's guy that he would let him climb onto the truck. Big point of pride. Okay. So like my brother grew (laughs) up on like frozen processed, but like we grew up totally different in that regard. Mm. And, um, and I feel like it's an honor that I get to have all their stuff, right? Like that's such a beautiful thing to me that I get to make those choices. It's also overwhelming, but I would be curious like how many, you know, we have all these like stats now about um, people, I hate this phrase, but it's everywhere right now, going no contact with their parents, like Mm. as adults. And I, I would be very curious. I like, I either think it's like 70% eldest daughters, or 30% old. You know what I mean? Like, right. I it's think not it's like, neutral. It's, it's not like, like all of them or it's none of them. It's not evenly I, distributed among yeah, the Yeah, I mean, family. I have some in my life who, eldest daughters, who are not in contact with their parents. And, you know, I just wonder, I don't know. I wonder what that, what those numbers really are. Hmm. RJ, what do you have to say? I'm thinking, I mean, my family's interesting because there's all boys. You know, yeah. I'm one of four boys. There are no yeah. women. So I think about Jamie a lot. And I think she does, she, she's an oldest daughter and she feels some level of responsibility to care for her parents, especially because, you know, um, her parents are divorced, but her, her dad's wife died of COVID, you know, very unexpectedly. Um, and then her mom's husband had a number of COVID related, um, strokes, which Mm -hmm. have made life more difficult. Yeah. So she spends time on the phone and things, but they're also in California. Like yeah. they're in Northern California and we're in South Florida. Like we could not possibly be any further away than we, than we are. But we do, we do talk about it, um, you know, about whether there will be members of her family or my family that end up moving to Florida and being with us. I will say my mother just moved, but oh. she moved, but she moved uh, close to my second to Patrick, <laughs> to okay. my second brother, okay. who I think is also like her executor, just to give you, he's more stable. He's the he's wealth manager. He's definitely the most together of he's the, the better. He's the, brothers, he's the best right? Heyman. Like, let's just say it. He's the best Heyman. He's so, the eldest daughter of the Heyman family. He kind of is. So she moved <laughs> Dan- near the Daniel, best. Daniel, if you're listening and we know you are. Uh, <laughs> That's right. You're the worst. You're not in the in the running here. Not even close. <laughs> not even close. So she's moved, mom's moving away from you and towards Patrick. Right. Um. <laughs> But then I do also think Jamie, um, I think she mourns a little bit. I mean, she has an amazing mother and an amazing grandmother. And all three of them are very entrepreneurial. Like mm-hmm. her grandmother started a credit union. Her mother started an insurance agency. Jamie started a couple of different businesses. That's amazing. It is kind of amazing. That's so cool. Um, like and, what a legacy. Yeah. And I think Jamie's, you know, not that she spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I think she would have liked to have had a daughter and kind of yeah, passed that, you know, sure. passed that along a little bit. Um, so I, I resonate with a lot of this. I think also Spencer, our second, just was far and away our easiest kid, just far and away. He's just slept all day. We take him to church. He would sleep. We take him out to meals. He would sleep. You know, he was just always super, super As a, as a baby, let's be clear. Not as a, well, not as like a teenager. Would he also sleep in the well, church he, as, well, like as a kid? As a no, he, he just would sleep at home while we went right. to church. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I see. So, yes. I know that game. Um, yeah. So, but the the whole daughter thing, I don't I don't know what to do with because there are no 
you know, we have no, I have no daughters and I have no sisters, so yeah. I can't really relate to that. But I do think the birth order thing is a thing. Yeah. I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'd be interested in this from kind of like a dispositional theological perspective. Like mm. I know that when I look around, uh, certainly within the work of Mockingbird, it does seem to be there. It, it resonates with a lot of eldest daughters because oh, they're, yeah. uh, they're under so much expectation and they don't have to, you don't have to abstract it at all for them to say, yes. are you doing enough? Are you not, you, do you feel like you're not doing enough? Yeah. I mean, it, it could be, and I know that to some extent, you know, what we would say theologically is like the condemnation of the law applies across the board. Everyone feels some pang of kind of not enoughness, but it feels very pronounced in a certain type of, you know, you might say it's like a striver type or, a, yeah. you know, we, this is sometimes get, get accused of that sort of type a, you know, um, this, this message appeals to people who are, who are constantly feeling like they're behind, but it does strike me as something that, uh, you know, Hey, Eldest siblings need somewhere to go too, you know. Like, if they, <laughs> I, I would be interested to see how it broke down. Uh, that would be fascinating. Lines. But that would, let me say, yeah. my guess also is, if you talk to their younger siblings, they would say, "Well, you you don't let us do anything. You're such yeah, a yeah. Con- you're such a perfectionist and such a control freak. Yeah, you know, like maybe we want to help, but we never do it the way that you would want it done, and we don't yeah. do it well enough. And do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I'm sure. Yeah. That, well, I, I didn't yeah. read a, a portion of this where like one of the professors talks to he. To, how, how do firstborns describe themselves? And it all has to do with being leaders and being, you know, initiators uh, and, and, and kind of being uh, proactive. And then you ask second and thirdborns how they would describe firstborns and all of it say bossy, yeah. overly controlling. And yeah. like, you know, there's again, it's another situation where I, I like how you said that, Sarah, because there are. I think of our firstborn, not a, you know, not a, not a girl, but um, while he is the one with whom there's the most conflict, yeah, uh, he's also the one that gets the most attention and he gets the most resources, just totally. partly because we're sort of more, you know, I don't, I don't think you can really like control necessarily how your brain works with these things as a parent, yeah. but like we're overly concerned because partly because he's the one he's always on the frontier of stuff we've never done before, you know? So if he's 13 right now, it's like, Oh my gosh, puberty. I've heard about it from RJ. Uh, I've experienced it myself. And yet puberty in 2023 is feels very different than puberty in, you know, 1994. Um, so anyway, I think that's all this to say is like a, you know, just a, a ter- tremendous amount of compassion is due all of us. But it's, I, the- I do want to say on the point of the theological bent, you know, one thing that is interesting about being an eldest daughter is your parents just don't step in for you as an adult. Like that's very much a pattern in my life and in the lives of friends that I have. Um, so I think about uh, a, my best friend um, who is an eldest daughter and she has told me before that when she was a kid and her brother like had ADHD and a sort of a whole host of developmental things he was dealing with that her mom would just say, I'm so glad I never have to worry about you. Mm. I never Uh have to think about you and what's going on with you. Like you're, you know, like you're good. And in my own life, I can remember these moments. Like I remember Harvey is a very specific one when I really needed my parents to come. And, um, I got in a pretty bad car accident and I really needed my parents to come and I would see on my husband's phone that my mom would be like, you know, I think she's going to be okay without us. <laughs> and like, I would ask them to come and they would be my, I remember Harvey mom was like, I just can't do that. And she showed up for my brother in, in a lot, in a lot, in a lot of a bigger way, frankly. And so 
I think there's something, and that's not to criticize my parents. I think they're just doing what a lot of people do who have an oldest girl that like made okay grades and, you know, stayed on the straight and narrow. I think that's part of the reason why Mockingbird for me and the message was so powerful because it was like this first space that didn't say, actually, you have to meet these expectations in order for you to fulfill, like in order for you to be loved on some level. I mean, that sounds really harsh, but like there, it does not surprise me that, I mean, I know a lot of the women in Mockingbird and a lot of them are firstborns, you know, (laughs) Um, because it's a, it's new, it's a, a word of relief to us. Um, yeah, and I, I think that what's interesting here is that this word "daughtering" is um, basically a synonym for uh, it, it, a huge amount of work. You know, it's yeah. a, it's 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 yes, it's a privilege, but the kind of daughtering that an elder the eldest daughter is called on to do sounds like it's inordinate compared to what the youngest daughter is called to do, or the youngest brother, or, or oldest, even oldest yeah, brother. even the eldest son. Like I don't, I'm not totally sure that boys. I don't, I, I'm always think of this, this friend, this neighbor my mom had who, um, you know, they're having kids at the same time. And when she found out she was pregnant with her third and it was going to be her, her third boy, she said to my mom, I just know that when I'm in a hospital bed dying, it's going to be some strange woman standing over me, taking care of me, meaning it's going to be like a (laughs) daughter-in-law. And like, I don't know how true that is, but like, I was, I I mean, that made such a big impression on me. Like, well, okay. So the boys won't do it, you know, like, what does that mean? So who does it? Well, there's certainly less of a thing where it's just not as acceptable, at least from what I can tell for, grown men to be super close with their moms in the way that grown women, like most of the, a lot of the grown women who have a quote unquote great relationship with their mom, that actually means they talk to their mother multiple times every day. And if I was a, as a, as a grown man doing that, you know, generally the thought would be there's, there's, that's a weird, that's, that's, that's weird. A, there's an yes. issue. Not and it wouldn't, generally. Be, and That'd it wouldn't be, weird. be, it wouldn't be okay with the women, with the other women in my life. No. So it's like, it's not necessarily that men are opting out. It's like, it's a little bit of a, um, but I, I just see that that, that closeness, that emotional bond, yeah. like that, that mothers and daughters can have when it's good carries with it. This also this expectation that you will, yes, you're my best friend, but you're also going to be the one who cares for all my emotional needs and, you know, catches me when I fall. Yeah. I, um, I, I, but I, what I guess I'm trying to say is that the, the word of like the gospel and the sort of Christian relief here would be that to be a daughter of God Mm. is not to have to daughter well. Right. You know, yeah. or to daughter out of gratitude rather than right. obligation, or to you know, because um, what they don't is there a, a, even a term for sunning like that? That's that means you're that's tanning what you do yourself. When you're at the beach, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's yeah. it, that says something. Well, let's we're, we're yeah. going to keep talking about parenting a little bit because this next article is fascinating. We're going to talk about Sam Bankman Fried's parents. Now, those of you been following the news know that Sam Bankman Freed was this billionaire made all this money in cryptocurrency and has just been convicted sort of a resounding guilty conviction uh, and he was seen as this wunderkind of uh, finance and um, and and also um, well, we talked about one time on this cast the effective altruism movement he was sort of a part of it and he's the son of two Stanford uh, professors 
So uh, there is uh, this Katie Royfe wrote in the Wall Street Journal, why are we so obsessed with Sam Bankman Fried's parents? They were very present in the trial, uh, mm. apparently. I didn't, I didn't watch it, but this is fascinating. Part of the fascination of the trial was the inevitable confrontation between parental love and harsh reality. There was, in the press and the public, a hunger for Bankman and Freed to process that their son had committed the crimes he was accused of, which, of course, they may never do. The spectacle raises the unsettling question, can any parent see their child clearly? One wonders if the idée fixée we have about our children, quote, Sam will never speak an untruth, it's just not in him, his mother, Barbara Freed, said. Uh, whether these ideas we often have are delusions or fantasies. If we are all this blinkered or blind on the subject of our sons and daughters, uh, that's the question this raises. If we will follow them into any dark place they go. Sam was pretty conspicuously and flagrantly lying on the stand, but his parents may never believe that. She goes on to say, one fascination of this operatic family saga is what it reveals about the ultimate futility of privilege and the limits of our ability to truly save or even help our children. You can do all the right things, correctly identify and nurture your child's strengths, infuse in them morally upstanding values, and they can still crash and burn. Mm. What we are seeing in this story is the failure of good intentions or good values or substantial resources to protect a young person. Many of us long to discover some fatal misstep, something Bankman or Freed did wrong as parents, some way in which they could have acted differently to save their brilliant but dangerously arrogant son. Say, limiting his screen time or communicating more clearly that rules apply to everyone, even the children of Stanford professors. Yet, we may only find how helpless parents are to ensure the happiness or even basic well-being of their child. Saving Sam is the major project of our lives, Freed said, and it is also the project at which they will most spectacularly fail. <laughs> wow, what a gut punch, but what a uh, powerful thing. I mean, because this is why we love these sort of stories is we want to find out what did they do wrong that I can do right to prevent this from ever happening. And yet I think also it'd be kind of cool for some of us to have billionaire children, you know. Like, yeah, yeah, more, yeah, what can I do to make my son with $20 billion, but then make sure he doesn't go to jail. That's yeah, more, that, that's that's more what, what I, it is. That's what I really want to discover in <laughs> this. Right. Like, well, I want to do part of what they did right. And then that's the right. last little part that turns into criminality. keep the good and just minimize the bad. Yeah. And pure sort just of tweak. exceptionalism. Maybe I'll just uh, see if I can sort of engineer that out. Yes, yes. Um, now, I haven't honestly been following mm. this that clearly. It did strike me as like a lot of cryptocurrency stuff. It strikes me as kind of glorified video games. And I know there's... A lot of at stake, clearly a lot at stake. Um, but the way that Katie That's Royfe, also our entire financial system. But yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's all games. Um, it's all it's all an elaborate ruse. I have this paper that's worth something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this fascination with them needing to face, sort of come to terms with the fact that their son is guilty, and they really may never do that. Like I think when they interview the the, the, the mother, especially, she just has um, blinding and it's kind of what what some might say unconditional, but blinding uh, you know vision when it comes to her son that she cannot see a bad thing. Where do you guys go with this tale, RJ? What what are you thinking? 
Well, I've only really been following it through the Michael Lewis lens, you know, the author who wrote Moneyball and he came out with a new book called Going Infinite and he does 60 Minutes thing. And, oh, sure. And the whole time he's been kind of saying that, that the real story is that he did actually kind of have good intentions. He just was like the world's worst manager who didn't understand people at all. And if he did things wrong, it wasn't really out of an intent to hurt anybody or to steal. It was just basically kind of um, naivete and incompetence. It's yeah. kind of what Michael Lewis has been saying. But the thing which did strike me about this story was, doesn't everyone want parents like that? Mm. You know, who, 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 will, who will never stop imputing righteousness to their kids? And isn't that actually, you know, the miracle of Christianity is that we have God who is um, the judge who acquits us and the parent who never stops loving us, mm. you know, who never stops sort of um, making excuses for us, letting us off the hook, putting it on somebody else, you know, and and um, I get it. I mean, I get the, the whole schadenfreude of the thing, but it just, it seemed a little mean spirited to me. It mm. just seems a little mean. Like, okay, he really, he massively screwed up. It's a sad story, man. Yeah. No matter how you slice it, it's a sad story. And like, can we have a little compassion for parents that want to see the best in their kid? Yeah. You know, I, that's what I would want my parents to do. I totally agree with RJ. You know, the, but the, you know, the thing that keeps coming to mind actually is a story in my own family. I have an uncle um, who's a pharmacist by training and who's just been in and out of, uh, rehab his whole life. I mean, it's a miracle. He still has his pharmacy license and he is an asshole. Okay. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like he is, he told me when my dad, when my mom and dad died, we were sitting at the kitchen table probably two weeks later. And, you know, the problem with this guy is he sounds like my dad. He looks like my dad. So when I get around him, just physically speaking, I feel a lot of warmth. Mm. And I was trying to, like, you know, kind of have this warm conversation with him. And he kind of sat back in his chair and really just felt like such addict behavior, right? He sat back in his chair and he goes, damn, if I'd have known that uh, people were going to respect me this much, I'd have killed your dad a long time ago. What? I mean, a real, real <laughs> dark gracious. personality, That's right? Wild. And um, my grandmother would have put that man in a book bag and carried him around. I mean, the love that she had for him and the rescue that she did for him and the way that she worked so hard to keep her family and relationship with him was incredible and i know a lot of people see that and they see an addict and they think well she was enabling or whatever probably true right but like she didn't know any better and all she knew was was like to love him and to worry about him and you know this is the grandmother that was bible cover to cover so just to pray for him constantly and you know what he he's not a good dude his life has not worked out well um he unfortunately learned very quickly that he was no match for me so um he does not speak to me anymore <laughs> not a subscriber uh, or he's not a, he unsubscribed to the sarah channel y'all um and so we're not close anymore um but i i as difficult as he was and is 
there's still part of me that like if he showed up at something, I'd give him a hug and tell him I loved him because my grandmother mm. bared witness for what that looks like. Mm. Because it we again we go back to the same thing we always come to in our conversations around fallen people. And that is that they did not choose to be fallen. They were not born thinking I'm going to be a horrible person that says horrible things. Like that's not, you know, we want to so desperately believe that we want to believe that this guy like willfully made this money and willfully stole things and will like, we want to believe that I want to believe that my uncle just like, walks around like being a horrible person to people and saying really mean things to his niece because like he wants to because he wants to and i genuinely don't think he does like and i think that's so and i I, my grandmother's witness was so important to me growing up you know well people haven't listened to simeon Zal's talk from uh, minneapolis called the world is a hospital he tries to make it clear that we do not have a what he calls a manichaean view that there are some people that are evil and some people that are good like a a marvel movie and the 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 point of life is to 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 give more power to the good than to the evil and somehow find find the find the thing that will you know the the macguffin the the infinity stone that will, will 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 allow us to vanquish evil he was he says that evils is good going bad i mean it there's it's not it's not the um, it's to be redeemed, not yes. to be uh, annihilated. Which is, and which is why people totally, are eating themselves alive over the Middle East thing, right? Like that's why people are eating themselves alive right now because they're constantly like, but which person can we categorize and what, you know, which group of people? Whose side do we with, take? Yeah, Whose side are you like, on? Guess what? That's not how this works, you know. And he was—he just says—and it's a really compelling talk. It's very simple, but the Christian view of the world says that evil is real, but it's simply good that's been sort of uh, disordered. Yeah. And so we do not wish for it to be completely. Uh, yeah, it's complete annihilation. We just don't think in those terms, and it it, rely, it, it it does apply to this situation. I mean, there's also like, you know, when you look at when you the deeper you look into the Sam Bankman Freed thing, you see not only someone who's fabulously successful, but someone who is at trying to fulfill the law of sort of philanthropy and, and you know, oh, effective yeah. altruism. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And his parents were, too. I think that yeah. one of them is an ethics professor. I mean, it's oh, so man. there's something about yeah. it's a law professor and ethics professor <laughs> at someone at, 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 at this family that was kind of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And part of me wants to see, I, I think part of the fascination and probably a very small part of the fascination is like, oh my gosh, it's not that I'm just sort of haven't figured things out like they have or wasn't born with enough natural gifts. It's that we're all kind of like, even the people that I think are the closest to the ideal of right. pure success, moral and commercial success, they, there's something, there's a, deep chink in the armor too. There's disordered good, you know, there's, there's sin there's, um, and, and, and there's something comforting about that. But I think you're a hundred percent right. We have to, um, the, it, it, I always think about that, that movie, we have to talk about Kevin, which is about, Uh you know, interviewing the mother of a kid who's committed a a mass shooting. And, um, you know, how do you, she still loves her son. Yeah. And, uh, and yet the, 
culture, our impulse is to say, well, what did she do? Right. That, because we want to control. We, we well, want to control. What, what, what did she do that, that I can learn from and not do so that such and such will never happen? And that kind of silver bullet doesn't really exist this side of Heaven. Well, and I think even worse than that, I do believe there is this visceral, and maybe it's just me, like maybe I'm just the horrible person on the planet, but I think there's this visceral thread in us that wants even his mother to say that he is unlovable, you know? I mean, I think that's the real thing that we're battling within ourselves is, you know, because if we if we can... We just want to push those people as far to the outer darkness as we can because we're so afraid of being them and we're mm-hmm. so afraid of making the mistakes they've made. So, and let it be said, every other person in his life turned against him, right? Yeah. His his ex girlfriend and all his best, his best friends, friends yeah. testified against yeah. him. So, like the yeah. only people in his yeah. corner are his parents. Yeah, and yeah. Well, there's something very beautiful then that we can. And so I want to shift. We don't usually always talk about the most um, positive things in the world outside of the gospel. But let's. I, I ran across a podcast a couple weeks ago, another one of these, A Slight Change of Plans with Maya Shankar, where she interviewed a guy named Dr. Keltner, um, who is a Berkeley, RJ, uh, UCLA Berkeley scientist, uh, sort of um, psychology professor, who's written a book called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Now, this has gotten a, he, there was an interview with him on the podcast, and you just, he, this came out last year, and it's really, really fascinating. He's interested in awe. He says that after 20 years into teaching happiness, I have an answer. Find awe. If you want to mm. find happiness, find awe. Now, what does he mean? Well, early on in this book, Keltner defines awe as, quote, the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your current understanding of the world. End of quote. Sound familiar? Uh, Keltner tells us that the experience of awe varies among different cultures, but it is a universal emotion, one accompanied by its own language of chills, tears, vocal bursts like oohs and ahs. He acknowledges that awe has a dark history. It's linked to fear, but insists that today it has largely been shorn of fear, citing one study that suggests awe sits closer to emotions like joy and admiration. For Keltner, awe is an ennobling experience, one that can foster wonder, creativity, and collaboration. He was inspired to write this book uh, in 2019 when he lost his brother, Rolf, to colon cancer. And he writes movingly about the transformative feelings that followed his brother's death. He says this, the boundaries that separated me from the outside world faded. I felt surrounded by something vast and warm. My mind was open, curious, aware, wondering. Now, so that's an experience of death that produces awe. Interesting. He shows that the stimuli for awe are remarkably varied, and he divides them into eight different categories or wonders. The moral beauty of others, nature, collective movement, music, visual design, spirituality and religion, big ideas, and the cycle of life and death. The one that is the most powerful is not actually spirituality and religion, but the moral beauty of others. Isn't that interesting? In one chapter, Keltner describes a visit to San Quentin State Prison in San Francisco, where he asked prisoners about their experiences of awe. He wants to chest to see if this is only accessible to the quote-unquote privileged. And he found that prisoners facing unfathomably difficult circumstances do indeed experience awe, whether when reading the Quran or singing in a church band. 
Awe, he writes, is almost always nearby and is a pathway to healing and growing in the faces of losses and traumas that are part of life. If anything, he says, those who have wealth or status may find it harder to access awe. Feelings of awe shift attention away from the self toward what is around you, to being, in the words of Jane Goodall, amazed at things outside the self. The book reports awe stories from 26 cultures around the world, from Mexico to India to Japan to China. The moral beauty of others was the most universal source of awe. I agree. I think that experiences of awe, anything that draws you out of the self, we've talked about this many times before, but, you know, um, and this is why I think a lot of people love nature so much. And it's, it's, it, it can be, he talks about experiences of collective effervescence, which is what you experience at a, say, a Taylor Swift concert or uh, at a church service. Um, you know, uh, collective effervescence is usually a, a, some experience of awe. Um, what I think is fascinating here, partly, is not only um, is sort of quote unquote happiness linked to moving beyond the self or that which transcends the self, but the moral beauty of others being the greatest source of awe over spirituality and religion. And yet, what if your spirituality and religion is? grounded and uh, completely uh, centered on the ultimate moral beauty of the other, which, you know, being Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. Mm. Um, I find the the sacrificial love of God being uh, the way that these two things are married. Um, So, I mean, I don't know, where do you guys find awe? Do you you, you buy this argument or is this another self-help sort of pseudoscience thing? I totally buy this. I mean, I I think my life is... Like, I think life can be filled with moments of awe. I mean, I think it's just as simple as, like, you know, getting up in the morning with kids. I mean, there's so many opportunities for it. I I do also want to say, though, I think church, this is our advertisement for church attendance, is one of those rare places that encompasses, if not all, most of those markers Mm. in a really beautiful way. Like, I think about a service I was at recently at St. B's, and it was like... I loved the sermon. I loved the music. There's like, I mean, it's Nashville and we have a really gifted guy. Um, Shout out to another David who does such a good job, but like the music is just incredible. And, um, and then these people got up and they talked about this ministry here that like takes in um, homeless people overnight Mm. when it gets really cold outside and we run it out of the church. And so people sleep there and feed them and all this stuff. And, I was just so, it was so powerful to me to hear about this incredible thing that happens there. And, you know, which, because I think some, there's something in me that recoils a little bit whenever the word moral or morality gets used. <laughs> like, I'm like, you know, <laughs> what you talking about? But I think I would be so interested to know of those stories, which of them really fall under the category of forgiveness or grace. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, yep. it's, le- it's less. Because it's always like the undeserving meeting the the grace and the love, right? I mean, that's like it's rescue, not, rescue. Yeah, would be it's a big rescue. One. It's rescue. It's just it's not like follows all the rules, you know. Has the <laughs> has the greatest faith? Like that's not what it is. Um, mm. So yeah. Maybe you think about that's though interesting about church. There's also visual design is one of the categories. Oh, I know. Yeah. Like I mean, big ideas and yes. the cycle of life and death. All of these yes. things, as well as God yes. and uh, collective effervescence and 
moral beauty. I mean, it's all there except for nature, I guess. But we just this basically means we need to have more outdoor chapels. I, I don't know. Um, Rutger. I think one of the reasons I said earlier I had – this is one of the best weeks of my ministry this past week. And I think it's because there were so many things – that happened that exceeded my expectations. Mm. You know, things that I thought would be good, but they were like way better than I thought they were going to be. Like, you know, we had this Wednesday night fellowship program and we had our last one this past Wednesday and like 150 people came, which was crazy. And we did this like sing along of like (laughs) secular songs until we're all singing together, like don't stop believing and country road and uh, we will rock you and in the parish hall. And it was just ridiculous. I mean, it was stupid, but it was so fun. You know, it was really, really, really fun. So, but I also do think I recognize my own dependence and almost, I don't say addiction, but I can't get addicted to things that exceed my expectations. Do you know what? I I can't feel like just chasing a high and off because awe oftentimes is a surprise. Totally. You know, you can kind of look for it, but you yeah. really are more surprised by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like genuine awe. And it made me think of um, that Pixar movie, Soul, which I just love so much, where the yeah. main character is chasing awe, chasing accomplishment, chasing transcendence. And then just when he gets it, he dies. And he comes back to earth looking for it again. Mm. But the have you seen Soul, Sarah? No, it oh my, came, what is wrong out, with like, you? It came out not long. Look, my parents are dead. Our dad. It is really fantastic. <laughs> I, it's I, amazing. I, think I could watch it now. But yeah. it ends up being about the transcendent beauty of everyday life. Oh. And that's and that's where I want to live. Right. I yeah. want to live in a place where I'm not sort of chasing it or waiting for it or hoping it comes along. But like yeah. somehow you you actually have enough peace in yourself to to recognize it when it's like staring you in the face all the damn time totally. you know rather than living in your own head yeah um or or regretting the past being anxious about the future um and and yeah. you know I, I have moments like that where i'm like oh my god right now i'm actually kind of living in the present praise the lord thank you i know yeah. it won't last let me enjoy it for like the yeah. five seconds that and now on to my next worry <laughs> you yeah. know my, yeah. um but because Life is a an amazing thing, but it's just so easy to miss it in your fears and to do list and anxieties and right. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. This so is that's what, what I, mean, I think. When about. I was a lot of times when I was doing the tour for low anthropology, I'd, I'd have people sort of ask about like what this means for. Uh, hope and everyday life and all that stuff. And is this a sort of a downer of a book? And I said, I, my sense actually is that most of our experiences of awe, for example, are linked to a feeling of smallness. Like, mm-hmm. um, yes, I see it's not just the Grand Canyon, you know, I, I, you go to the U2's, uh, you know, dome show and you just are dwarfed by something and, and a smaller view of yourself. <laughs> all you need is $5,000. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah. Well, I keep hearing about it. So thanks for everyone for telling me about it. Yeah. But, um, to view yourself as sort of small is to set your is actually to be set up for frequent experiences of awe and wonder. Yeah. I think yes. I think a low anthropology actually is is really a precursor to it in a lot of yes. ways, rather than sort of um, expecting the world to surprise you. I guess to be wowed is to expect not to be wowed. You know, and um, I I experience this not just I do experience it in nature, and yes, I experience it at church. But I'm thinking about it. You know, this is this might strike. Uh, 
listeners is truly profane, but I was watching Curb Your Enthusiasm the other day. And uh, the way that Larry David um, has to, and this is mainly seen in Seinfeld as well, but the way that he weaves in so many plots and kind of makes the jokes just reach this fever pitch of every episode where I'm in awe of it. You see what's coming, you see what's happening. And you're like, I can't, I'm, I'm drawn out of myself into just pure awe. And again, the subject of the comedy is usually man's inhumanity to man, you know? Uh, but it is so ingenious that I'm sort of in awe of it and it makes me so happy as well as laughter, you know? Um, and there are other ways we experience this, but I, I do. I don't think this is somehow out of sync. A really healthy view of Oz is right in sync with a kind of an understanding of yourself as a as a creature who is not God and, and needs God, because um, that's what this. It, he actually talks elsewhere about how awe is really a, understanding how interdependent things are and how you're a cog in the machine. You're not. You're not the machine. You know. Right. Um, and that's actually in, and sometimes experiences of loss. What he says with his brother dying, um, g- grief. Sometimes you're so overwhelmed by this loss that that can be an awe-inducing expire, experience that gets you in touch with that which is beyond the material. That that which transcends the givens that we we think we, we assume are all there is. I, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And. I'm just going to keep going with this because this past week we have two instances of conversions that happened um, that I wanted to talk about. To Christianity. To Christianity. And unexpected, very, very unexpected people converting to Christianity publicly. Yeah. And it's worth talking about. Now, the, there, there's one sort of, a, there's like a kind of, I guess, a high culture and a low culture one. The uh, the more popular one, shall we say, is one that, Sarah, you alerted to us through Instagram. And RJ, you have now listened to a podcast about Kat Von D. Yeah. Um, she is, she came to prominence. She's a very, like a well-known sort of reality TV star and uh, tattoo artist, kind of like Morticia Adams from the Adams family come to life, but with a lot more tattoos. Yeah. Um, she put on Instagram her getting baptized and she's, she has a sort of, you know, she's been not only as kind of like, I guess, uh, how would you describe her persona? Like almost devilish goth, uh, and very, sexy, I would say you know, very like, goth, sexy goth. I think Morticia Adams like, but updated is like a really good description. Like she wears all black. She keeps it very like pale, you know, on her face. Um, like that's part, that's part of her look. It's part of her vibe. Um, yeah. And I, I just, I mean, I don't know if I can cut in here. Yeah. Cool. Okay? Just cut, just cut in. Cause relevant magazine interviewed her. She says she just went to church and, and uh, just felt like she needed to go. And yeah, totally. Yeah. She said now says she's on fire for Jesus, which yeah. is not the headline anyone was expecting. But Sarah, tell us more. Yeah, so she's sort of fits into this actually pretty common um, practices of women. I would say my age, maybe Gen X and younger, where there's a lot of interest in uh, the practice of witchcraft, of Wicca. There's also, um, you know, I would say probably people would see the more benign version of this would be like really into tarot cards and things. Astrology. Didn't we talk about that? Astrology definitely gets lumped in with that. I'm so sorry for anybody who that pisses off, but I'm not because it's the same thing. Um, And 
she, you know, this is kind of her practices. And I, and I just side note, if, if you are somebody who does these things or is into these things, I totally get it. Like I want those answers too. And, um, you know, I, I, I get it, but it, it's not it, you know, also I get it and it's not it. Um, and you know, on the one hand, I think all of it is not real. And on the other hand, I think if it is, I don't want it anywhere near me. And so I think that's kind of the conclusion she's come to. I mean, my joke about this that I think is funny and no one else may is that, um, you know, in Wicca, it's like very like naturalistic and like, um, you know, like I just imagine there being bird bones involved somehow. <laughs> and now that she's Christian and she's super Protestant Christian, but give the, give the girl like five minutes. Okay. Cause she's about to like, just head, she's running towards Anglo Catholicism. Believe you me. <laughs> Cause you want to talk about, we got people bones, you know what I mean? We got all kinds of new stuff she can try out. So, I mean, I, that's a joke, but I, um, except I what, she, what is, she'll say is she just wants to understand the Bible. She yes. just wants to study yeah. and understand RJ's the Bible. Be serious about it. And she yeah. chose, and she chose the church that she chose in like rural Indiana. Yeah, they moved to like a little town in the Mississippi in Indiana because she walked in and she's like, I wanted to know if the pastor could teach me the Bible. Yeah. and she's like in a Tuesday women's Bible study. Like yep. that's what. And I, there's more I can say, but Sarah, continue. No, I mean, I think th- I think that's great. I, I just I think it's a a really mm. remarkable, beautiful thing for someone to realize this thing that maybe, I mean, she said, I just didn't want this stuff in my home anymore. Like I didn't want it around my family anymore. Mm. And that's pretty powerful. I mean, mean the the sort of occult things that yeah, yeah. she she was like, this isn't, this isn't good for us to have around. And I, I think there's a real honesty in that, that people are probably afraid to say out loud, especially people who like, I mean, let's be real. Kat Von D, she comes from the left. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And like, I think there's something really incredible about her recognizing that like these things aren't good to have around. Mm. Um, You know, the other thing she's done and RJ, she may have talked about this on the podcast, but she has started blacking out all her tattoos that do not fit this way of living for her that do not sort of align with her Christian life. And when I say black, not, I mean, sis's whole arm has been tattooed black. Like she's, you know, and I, I know people will hear that and think, wow, that's really extreme. This is an extreme person. So she's not going to do anything halfway. And so there's something, I just find it really beautiful. That's what's kind of cool and refreshing about it. Yeah. Uh, RJ, before you go into it, let me just read this one thing that she did say on a podcast. I thought she said she, she shared that the church she uh, attends now is different than the others she'd seen before. And that's partly what drew her in. She said, you know, we all dress nice when we go to church. That's our own personal thing. This is a, Sacred space. You're right. She's going to become an Anglo-Catholic any minute. Um, uh, And I feel like other outlets and stuff just don't really align with what I'm looking for. You know, I feel like God spit me out on the doorsteps of the most perfect church for me. She said she shared her initial experience at the church, which she said is a small congregation with, quote, a lot of old people. Praise the Lord. Um, She and her family had arrived early and accidentally disrupted an early morning prayer circle. These people just stood up and embraced us. They didn't really care about who people think we are. They were just like, oh, yeah, you're the lady who just bought the house down the street, and we've actually been praying for you. 
It's so powerful. <laughs> so like, I have chill bumps. It makes me want to cry. Like, Way not to fumble like, the ball, you guys. That's, that's, that's off. That's off. That's off. I'm, I'm in right? awe. That is off. Yeah. So, right. RJ, you've listened to the whole podcast with her. Tell us I about it. It was fascinating. So she was raised by missionaries in Mexico, but I think mainly medical missionaries because okay. they were very strict, but she actually didn't read the Bible a lot. And then, of course, she rebelled. Yeah. Um, she became an addict. She went through recovery. I think that uh-huh. kind of opened the door to God mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. bit, and she started thinking more and more about it. But then, yeah, she just um, fell in love with Jesus, and she converted probably oh. a year and a half or two years ago. I think there were some really interesting things. One was just um, all the hate that she got on social media, both from people from her old life, but also from Christians yeah. being like, oh, you're pathetic. Now that LA Inc. isn't on anymore, you're just looking for um, attention. And uh, and if you were really yeah, serious so about this, you- that's why she moved to Indiana. Well, and she said, she said, first of all, she's just like block delete. Yeah. And she said, it's, it's tough, but she said, because she said, honestly, my husband isn't there yet. He's processing, you know, uh, he's not quite there yet and yeah. I'm praying for him, but this yeah. is not helpful. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, babe, I'm not sure I want to be part of this tribe that's going to yeah. attack me. And she did say, just so you guys know, like tons of goth kids reach out to me and they're like, I'm kind of interested in Jesus, but everyone in my parents' church hates me. Yeah, You know, everyone, no one will talk to me, Yeah, but they're talking to Kat Von D, you know? And in this interview, which is hilarious because it was like her looking like Morticia Adams and then like this other actually pretty lovely Baptist girl with like fake blonde hair and a but fake like tan wearing Baptist. jeans. Yes, yeah, I just mean. like it could not yes. be more. But it was they like were really AI Baptist interview girl. Yeah. <laughs> but they were so respectful and humble yeah. and, and kind of vibing on each other. And, yeah. you know, one of the questions this interviewer asked was like, what do you say to the Christians who are like, how can this person be a Christian with all these tattoos and the punk rock music and the stuff she's into and the death and and Kat Von D was like, well, yeah, like I like what I like and I'm into what I'm into. And and she said, you know, you know, people enjoy sports and that's right. not all about Jesus. Right. <laughs> you know, like, am I allowed right. to enjoy things that are not a hundred percent about Jesus all the time? And it did strike me like, you know, from Corinthians, right? All things are lawful. Not all things are helpful, but it's kind of up to each Christian to decide what is actually helpful right. for them. And we need to give people the freedom to live their Christianity and, and like the things that they want to like. And then the interviewer was also like, well, what about your friendship with Marilyn Manson? And she was like, yeah, he and I connected a couple years ago through our recovery. And all I'm going to say is like, no one has any idea what's going on with Marilyn Manson. And there's some really amazing uh... changes happening in his life. And I'm not, I'm not about to cut all my friends out of my come life just be, just because I'm a Christian now. Yeah. You know, I pray for them. I love them. Yes. I don't think Jesus would want me to stop being friends with them. No. So it was just like, bam, 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 That's bam. So I was cool. like, this chick is awesome. She gets it. Just so humble. And also just also very humble. Like I'm still learning. I'm, I'm figuring out the Bible. I'm figuring out what life looks like. You know, um, I don't have the answers, but I just feel like I'm still called to be She's myself. Like, I, I don't want to be the poster child for Christianity, but, no, I'm, yeah. a, no. but I'm certainly not going to deny that it's true. I, I, I also, yet another lesson, listen, 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 boys and girls, if you want to go full goth, <laughs> yeah. just go to the catacombs in Rome. I mean, Hello. Seriously. you could not Hello. have a more... There's uh, nothing more goth than Christianity, guys. Okay? There's, a, there's, a there's straight, nothing. There's a straight line. We love... Robert there's Smith. a whole architectural style named after your... Dead. Yeah, come to us. Okay? The Cure. The Cure. The very name of it. I mean, it's just, it's just it's like... <laughs> g- 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 follow it. Follow disintegration is, all the way, my friend. 
hundred visit San Sulpice. True. <laughs> Go to Sagrada Familia. Like, it's it is uh, it's it's wild that American yeah. Christianity does not does not have any like it only has ironically goth things, but like yeah. the history of Christianity is there's no Super goth without goth. it. You know? it's, <laughs> it's metal. Okay, we, this is the goth. We are all yeah. going. Oh, goth. you know what she also said? She's like one of the first people she connected with when she was Alice Cooper. Oh, yeah. Of um, course. Of course. Come you know, I'm just now. like, yes. Like, you know, talk about so two. Cool. So they're like the king and queen of goth Christianity, I, you know? I just, like, Let I that just... be a plug for the Well of Sound episode on Alice Cooper. Here we go. It's, Here we it, go. It will change He's your life. It in. It's plug, plug, plug. Oh, Alice Cooper. God. You guys, rules. it was so good. It made me so That's happy. So cool. Yeah. Well, let's if you go... don't do anything else, I got to say this. I want her to come speak at Holy Trinity. Kat Von D, will you please come yes. speak at Holy Trinity, yes. West Palm Beach? Name the time name the place please yeah, yeah. okay um, you gotta watch your baptismal video if you don't do anything else. oh it's gorgeous because all the moment her, she gets baptized is like you you, you have to well up I just, my sister in christ I my sister oh all her friends are there and oh. i'm betting a lot of them brought their tarot cards you know what i mean <laughs> And they're all, and they're super goth. She's got like a whole crowd of like, everybody is pretty much dressed in black, right? Like generally speaking, if you have, everybody's pretty much dressed in black and honey, she's got the hair and she's got, she's got all this stuff, except when she gets in that font, she is in a white robe. It's really jarring in the most beautiful. It's so beautiful. We will definitely put that link in the show it's notes. It's incredible. RJ, last there's, thing before well, we go. Well, there's also something. You, you remember where there's a guy playing a trumpet? There's yes. some there's some backstory behind that where like there was some very special song to her that has something to do with the trumpet and someone in the church found out and learned that song oh. so they could play it on the We're trumpet done. at her baptism. And I, was I just looked like, up that church and they have this sweet little Waratani Church in Indiana website. Yes. I mean, it's really yes. amazing. Yes. Praise God. And praise God. God for this next thing. This is the last thing we'll say. There's okay. another major conversion. This is from Sarah, you sent this to me. RJ, uh, you uh, I actually had three or four people sent it to me. My wife sent it to me. It's called Why I Am Now a Christian by Ayan uh, Hersi Ali. I hope I'm not, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Ayan Hersi Ali. You're not. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm joking. I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> uh, this was published on Unheard, the English website. It was picked up by a bunch of people. This is. There's, I'm going to read you a little bit of the uh, introduction from the free press, and then I will read you what she wrote. Now, I, I don't know who she was, frankly, but she's a major figure. Ayan Hirsi Ali is a refugee from Somalia, where she was the victim of female genital mutilation. She was a Dutch politician whose criticism of Islam, the religion she was raised in, led to death threats. Theo von Gogh, her collaborator uh, on a film about Islam, was murdered in the streets of Amsterdam, and the killer left a note stabbed in his body warning that she would be next. Jesus. A normal person would have shut up, but Ayan is not normal. She wrote a memoir, Infidel. She became a mother, and then she became an American, and she never, ever quieted her voice. Um, she has also been, since the early 2000s, among the most prominent atheists in the world. Uh, she was sort of lumped in with the new atheist crowd. Or at least she was until late last week, when she announced that she has converted to Christianity. The Egyptian intellectual Hussein Abu Bakr Mansour wrote in reaction to the news that Ayan Hirsi Ali's announcement of embracing Christianity is one of the biggest pivotal moments culturally since 9-11, and I don't know how many people actually realize that. 
Ayan Hirsi Ali was the poster child of what the new atheists promised Islam. Not just is she saying she is not certain about that promise anymore. She is saying she isn't even certain about the promise the future the new atheists could afford themselves. Okay. All right. What did she actually say? She said that in 2002, she discovered that famous 1927 lecture by uh, Bertrand Russell entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. Uh, Bertrand's assertion that religion is based primarily on fear resonated with me. I had lived for too long in terror of all the gruesome punishments that awaited me. And to understand why I became an atheist 20 years ago, you first need to understand the kind of Muslim I had been. I was a teenager when the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated my community in Nairobi, Kenya in 1985. I don't think I had even understood religious practice before coming to the Brotherhood. But the preachers of the Brotherhood changed this. They articulated direction, the straight path, a purpose to work toward admission into Allah's paradise after death. The most striking quality of the Muslim Brotherhood was their ability to transform me and my fellow teenagers from passive believers into activists almost overnight. We didn't just say things or pray for things, we did things. As girls, we donned the burqa and swore off Western fashion and makeup. We were told in no uncertain terms that we could not be loyal to Allah and Muhammad while also maintaining friendships and loyalty toward unbelievers. You can see why, to someone who had been through such religious schooling, atheism seemed so appealing. Bertrand Russell offered a simple, zero-cost escape from an unbearable life of self-denial and harassment of other people. For him, there was no credible case for the existence of God. Religion, Russell argued, was rooted in fear. Fear is the basis of the whole thing, he wrote. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. As an atheist, I thought I would lose that fear. So what changed? Why do I call myself a Christian now? Well, first of all, she outlines the globally what she sees are the primary threats of the world, which are sort of a, a resurging authoritarianism in China and Russia and the sort of Islamicism that you see uh, in parts of the Middle East that is a deep threat to the West. We cannot fight off these formidable forces unless we can answer the question, what is it that unites us? The response that God is dead seems insufficient. So too does the attempt to find solace in the, quote, rules-based liberal international order. The only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. That legacy consists of an elaborate set of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard human life, freedom, and dignity, from the nation-state and the rule of law to the institutions of science, health, and learning. As Tom Holland has shown in his marvelous book, Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms of the market, of the conscience, of the press, find their roots in Christianity. Yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found that life without any spiritual solace is unendurable. Mm. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Bertrand Russell and other activist atheists believed that with the rejection of God, we would enter an age of reason and intelligent humanism. But the God hole, the void left by the retreat of the church, has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma. The result is a world where modern cults prey on the dislocated masses. The line often attributed to G.K. Chesterton has turned into a prophecy. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. 
Now, again, she's, of course, given her background, she sees the global implications here. And she leads with that as sort of what unites us, given, you know, and she's saying this in the backdrop of what's going on in Israel and Gaza. I know, I know. And she's got a stake here. She, she, she's, um, and again, and I think you have another what I would call extreme person. Uh, speaking yeah, in extreme for ways because sure. sure. yes some people would be like oh don't lump me in with that or don't lump yeah, me in yeah, with yeah. this um and i personally find the sort of i think she's we've heard it from tom holland that you know the great virtues that we that we enjoy in in the west didn't have to be historically they all spring forth from this the the death and resurrection of jesus christ as as a, as a, as, a, as a, a total paradigm shift however you want to consider it in terms of value in the world right in the history of the world the history yeah. of the world and and we would say and the metaphysical um shift in in hope and meaning and uh, belief but so I agree that sort of upholding the kind of liberal order of the West isn't really enough to get people excited. Not in the way, not in the way that it is, you know, when you see people who are sort of religious zealots, you know. But I also think what what she, the second thing that she says, when she says, I found life with, without spiritual solace to be unendurable. And I mean, she doesn't say it here. She doesn't really lay out the Christian gospel. She doesn't say that there is a, a way that's different from an eye for an eye. Um, she doesn't talk necessarily about the same uh, forgiveness and awe that we that you feel is in the backdrop of everything Kat Von D is saying. And yet, I do find it to be tremendously compelling um, as something uh, someone who cares about uh i don't know um life itself is is that she's she's been led by the grace of god i think to a um a new a new new place and i I just want to say praise god for that and for her courage in saying some of these things because i know that the audience that she's really speaking to is not going to be excited to hear them i i think it is first of all you're going to talk about awe i think it's incredible that someone who had something so god-awful as genital mutilation done to them is religious at all is pretty remarkable to me um Mm. you know that's a thing we don't ever really think about a lot in america we don't have to thank god but um it's remarkable to me that she's the person she is despite that having happened frankly um You know, it always becomes easy to um, (laughs) to really be frustrated with. Oh God, am I going to get in trouble with this? I'm not sure. Of course, you will. To get frustrated, to be frustrated with Islam, you know, and to be frustrated with some of the the teachings that seem to come out of it, and 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 of course, people will say, well, those aren't really the teachings, but sort of, let's just say, like the takeaways people get from it. Um, can be pretty terrifying. Um, RJ is about to get. In trouble. I would encourage everyone to read the Quran who wants yeah, to. Yeah, that was Jamie's that would, read the Quran. Yeah, that would I have be, not. My wife just just that's yeah. why I tell people when they ask me, I'm yeah. like, read the Quran. Yeah, read the Book of Mormon. Yeah, read the New Testament. Yeah, Re- don't take other people's words for yeah. it. Like yeah. you're literate. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, read these things. Yeah, I that it's it, so so okay. So I guess I need to be. I, you know, often when we leave a religion, we are very hard on that religion, right? Because we're mm-hmm. like, well, I'm not this, you know, anymore, and this is why I left this, especially to be born in it and to have been physically altered because of it, right? Um, 
I also think, thank God she found Jesus and thank God Jesus found her more Mm. importantly. And I hope she is in a place where she is not just hearing uh, law preached, but that she's hearing gospel. Mm-hmm. Like I really hope and pray yeah. that for her, yeah. Because I think it it would be easy to go from sort of one legalistic tradition into uh, Christianity. I mean, people do it all the time and sort of bring that same sense of legalism with you. And I, I and they do cer- it when they leave it too, right? And mm-hmm. I, I, yes, and I, I certainly think that there's probably forgiveness that she needs to seek out. Uh, and 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 not not for herself maybe so much as for other people and I hope that Christianity I mean I just pray that it can be a vehicle for her because I, Dave like you pointed out I feel like I'm rambling sorry but like you pointed out like I, she doesn't talk about the gospel and so I am wondering like what is that what is that looking like now for her in her context um I I the other thing I want to say about this and then I'll stop just rambling but. I think this is a very clear answer to the question of, well, why can't we just like, you know, be like the John Lennon song, right? And just like all get along and be happy and be like, you know, and frankly, be like progressive leftist and like, you know, all these things. And it's like, because if there's no meaning, it, you, you literally wilt and die on the inside. Like if this is all there is, and there's no real meaning and connection in in light and spirituality and and religion in your life you are dying on the inside whether or not you want to admit it you're dying on the inside i just i don't and i know that sounds really judgmental and i'm sorry for anyone who listens to this that it offends i genuinely am but i really believe that and the older i get the more i believe it so mm-hmm. yeah did any of that make sense, you guys? Sure. It's a hard thing to talk about. I mean, it's it's it is a really awkward subject. And I sure. do think that RJ is right to say, read the Quran and, yeah. and form form your opinions for yourself. I, I I do happen to think that the fuel people have to be angry about the tradition from which they come. And in her case, it is it is sort of a radical Islam. Yeah. Um, but for some people, it's radical atheism and that what sure. she fell into. The anger at can only sustain you for so long as the purpose. And it, maybe it'll sustain you for a long time, but it can't sustain you forever without sort of eating, eating you away yeah. is what I hear. Unless that you're somehow able to find or be found by a you know a, a source of meaning you have to I, I be for just, something you have for to be something. for something not just against <laughs> totally, something totally. you know and and it, it helps if that something is true yes <laughs> yeah. if god the god of grace and mercy is at the center of it i mean i i happen to think that bertrand russell's thing about fear it's um it's always struck me as uh, all religion is about fear it it it, 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 it might, you might say it's all about awe and there is an element of fear to that, yeah. you know, the, the fear of God. But I also think it's about the, the, the awe, a sort of the moral beauty of this, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and and the um, the the grace of God, uh, which is not doesn't create fear in me. You know, it's it's where I run to when I am afraid, and, and that's just this is the great 
terrible, awful irony of, of mm-hmm. the world in which we live. And it's like that, that would have been cast as its opposite is deeply sad. Uh, I don't want to deny that it has been, but um, it, maybe, maybe I sometimes wonder in the kind of crumbling of the, the West and of Christendom, do we have a chance to get back to um, God as being the refuge rather than the um, wagging finger? Um, because that's what I, th- I think that you start to read the actual, the Bible like Kat Von D and you really discover that's who God was all along. Three things. The first thing is to remember about Jesus. He's never coercive. Yeah. He never forces himself on anybody. He is never violent. He is ready to go to his death rather than to inflict violence on anyone else. He has no political ambitions whatsoever. And so anyone who has an inclination towards enforcing their Christianity on somebody else by any means, politically, uh, uh, religiously, whatever it is, that is not the spirit of Jesus, right? He is always non-coercive. He says, he who has ears to hear, let them hear or not. You know, and he dies alone, betrayed by everybody. Um, and then comes back to life. So we, we just all, you know, I, I, we need to remember that. And that always troubles Christians and more, probably more right-leaning Christians, you yeah. know, who are like, well, no, th- that wouldn't really work today. You know, the world is different today than it was in the Roman Empire. No, no, no. Actually, the Roman Empire was worse than the was world, worse. T- was way worse. Like, you have no idea. And yet yeah. Jesus dies. Yeah. So we need to hold on to that. <clears throat> the second thing is that, so that's for sort of the people more stereotypically on the right. On the left, we need to remember not all religions are the same. They're yeah. not. Yeah. They're not. I'm yeah. sorry. And and to say that yeah. they are do, doesn't just do us injustice, but it does injustice to Muslims and Hindus 100%. and Buddhists. And yeah, they're not the same. And no one is same. saying that they're, they're the same except people who don't believe them. They're yeah. not the same. So go <laughs> yeah. and read and talk to people. And that's the second thing. And then the last thing I would, I have to, I want to say is I just think, I do just kind of think Jesus is the best, <laughs> like not in a, <laughs> not in a triumphalistic, but rest. seriously, not yeah. in a triumphalistic militant power, not in a way that's going to make me enforce it on anybody. He's just more good. Yeah. He's more gentle. He's more loving. Yeah. He's more accepting. He's self-sacrificial. He's, it's a hard path. More and, counterintuitive, know, certainly more, more counter- against the grain of look, revenge and recrimination. Yeah, we, we were talking about, again, on Thursday morning with the men's group about the Israel-Palestine thing, as we always are. And I was like, look, the only solution is when someone decides to say, I'm done fighting, I'd rather die. I'd, like, kill, I'd rather be killed than kill. That's the only, the only hope is that someone just lays down and says, I'm, I'm done, mm-hmm. which is what Jesus does for us. But we don't mm-hmm. want to, so we don't want to hear that. But he is just... He's so good. Not all religions are the same. Jesus is amazing. But even if we think that Jesus is the best, it doesn't mean that we're imposing that on anybody else because he never did. He well, just part of what people. makes him so amazing is that his his core is um, grace, you know, yeah. love. Love. Yeah. God is love. And, 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 yeah. And, um, and there are no there are no Christians forcibly converted until like Eight or eight or nine hundred. Charlemagne was the first one to do it, and it was a huge mistake. The Crusades mm-hmm. were a huge mistake. The Inquisition was a huge mistake. You know, like these are. Yeah, but these a lot are... of really cool goth stuff sort of comes from that. <laughs> 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 yeah. Thanks for talking today, guys, and we'll be back after Thanksgiving to um, to talk more about uh, 
the grace of God and all the things we find awe-inspiring. Um, thank you. All right. Happy Love birthday. Y'all. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank Talk you. to you soon. All right. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Oh